HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The future of farms is the future of food. No Farms, No Future is a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Listen today. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I am your host for today, Melissa Fuster. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Join us over the next several weeks as we talk with authors from our winter and spring issues now available online. Our winter issue 21.4, from which this episode is drawn, features articles on mobility and immobility, food activism, and culinary translations. We are joined today, this week, by Carol Cunningham. Carol is Professor Emerita of Anthropology at Millersville University and has been studying food, gender, culture, and activism in Italy and the United States for 40 years, resulting in a very extensive bibliography, several books, and journal articles. Her most recent book is Italian Food Activism in Urban Sardinia, published by Bloomsbury in 2019, and an Italian edition by Rosenberg and Salier in 2020. She also has several edited volumes, including Food and Culture, A Reader, and Making Taste Public, Ethnographies of Food and the Census. And she's also editor-in-chief of the scholarly journal Food and Foodway. So Carol, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So we have invited you here today to talk about your article, Food Activism and Language in a Slow Food Italy Restaurant Menu, published in our winter issue. But before getting to the piece, I thought we can start by providing our listeners more context, background on your work and trajectory. So if you can share with us a a little bit about that, uh, what first drew you to the study of food in Italy? Well, uh, it was Italy itself that drew me to the study of food because I had been a uh, college student, exchange student in Italy in the late 1960s, if you can go back that far, and became fascinated (laughs) with Italy and decided I wanted to go to grad school and study the anthropology of Italy 
and of Sardinia in particular. And what I found was that food was something that people talked about all the time, whether you asked them about it or not. And so it was really the Italians and their fascinating food culture that drew me into the study of food. Yes, yes, no, and definitely I'm sure there was a lot of interesting conversations through, throughout the years about food in, in Italy. Your article examines uh, the slow food movement as an example of food activism. And you have a very interesting uh, analysis of a menu from a slow food dinner in Italy from 2009. Um, before again, before we get into, into the menu and that experience, maybe we can start by uh, sharing with our listeners more about your work uh, with slow food and and how how is how is it uh, how how is slow food uh, working in food activism? Yes, well, I got involved with slow food in the about I think it was about two thousand four, and I started collaborating on the no, actually it was about two thousand. I started collaborating on the magazine called Slow which was a magazine that they then produced in, I think, six languages uh, as a way of presenting to the general public some interesting findings about food to appreciate the importance of food, not just in culture, but also in politics, the environment, the economy, and really in, in the whole gamut of human activity. Um, And so Slow Food started in 1986, and eventually they were publishing Slow Magazine and asked me to col collaborate with them on the editorial board. That then got me involved with mm -hmm. uh, the people that were starting what is sometimes colloquially referred to as Slow Food University, but which is really called the University mm -hmm. of Gastronomic Sciences. And I started collaborating with that university as a visiting professor uh, in the master's program in 2004 and continued doing that until 2016. And so that kind of got me involved with the university side of the equation. And it was from that vantage point that I started doing research on the actual slow food organization. Um, as you probably know, and as many, many of our listeners will know, Slow Food focuses on good, clean, and fair food. So their goal is to make available food that is high quality, tasty, fresh, and local, um, that is produced without harm to the environment, and that is produced under fair working conditions for producers and fair prices for consumers. So it's kind of a, a holistic conception of what food activism is. And of course, it's just one among many, many um, initiatives currently taking place to better the food system and make our food more democratic. Mm -hmm. No, and they, they have done a lot of uh, good work, exactly that, just getting us to think more about where food comes from and everything that, that you mentioned. But I wanted to also ask you, and, and you mentioned, uh, you hint to this in the piece, 
that slow food has also been criticized by being uh, elitist. And, and I know there is an ongoing debate about this, so I was just curious to see how, how you see this criticism based on your long involvement with the organization. Yes. Um, I found in Italy there were, there were strains of this elitism that, that came out of what some people called the old soul of slow food or la vecchia anima, the old soul. And that was sort of the, the founders and the older members of the organization that had gotten into it really out of a fascinating fascination with eating good food. Um, then as the organization developed, there came into being this so-called new soul or la nuova anima. And that was mm -hmm. a much more politicized um, kind of, they, they even named it eco-gastronomy. So the gastronomic part was still there, the fascination with taste and good food, but there was an ecological and political side to it, <clears throat> excuse me, as well. And so with that new soul came a much greater awareness of, of the potential elitism of fancy dinners featuring special foods. And there was a developing interest in outreach to younger people, to uh, people of more modest socioeconomic status, and I think that, you know, the tension between the, the old soul and the more elitist concern with fine wines and fine foods and the new soul and the, and the concern with food activism and social change, there's still some of that tension. But I think the organization as a whole has, has really moved toward the more politicized new soul um, that I guess has sort of been in, in effect probably since about 2004. Yeah, interesting. And, and I did wanted to ask, uh, now that you provided this important context about this, this ongoing change and debate, um, that, that the article that, that you publish um, really goes deep into your experience at one of these dinners. Um, I mean, I'm one of the chapters of Slow Food in Italy. So can, can you tell us more about the event and maybe contextualize it more um, within what you just said about that, that transition from more elitist to, to more inclusive? How, who were the people in the dinner? How, how did you find yourself there? Well, this dinner was part of the National Chapter Assembly meeting in 2009. And so that's a meeting where the local Slow Food chapters, which um, every member of Slow Food gets assigned a chapter, usually in their geographic locality, and they become part of this chapter, which is called the Convivium in Slow Food language, or a Condotta, condotta in Italian. And each of these chapters does the kind of grassroots local work to foster the goals of slow food. Um, the National Chapter Assembly then brings together representatives from 
all or nearly all of the chapters from all over Italy into a two or three day meeting to kind of discuss what's going on in the chapters, what the national organization is doing, how they should work together to foster the goals of slow food. So in 2009, I, I was in Italy for the semester as a visiting professor at the University of Gastronomic Sciences and um, decided to study the slow food organization. So I went all over Italy interviewing people in different chapters, attending major slow food events like the famous Slow Fish or like Terra Madre, the meeting of chefs, producers, and consumers. And, um, and I got to go to this national chapter assembly. As part of the chapter assembly process, there were the usual you know, big meetings with people giving speeches. But true to form, uh, the whole thing started off with a dinner on the Friday night that the conference started or that the chapter assembly started. And so I, along with all of the delegates from all over Italy, were assigned um, a group to go with. I went with the regional group from Emilia Romagna, uh, which is where I was living at the time. Um, other people from Southern Italy were at a different restaurant or Milan, they were someplace else. But we from Emilia Romagna were all together in this one restaurant. And it was the kickoff of the, of the assembly meeting. So people were in great spirits. And of course, everyone was eager to have a, a wonderful dinner, which we did. So I got to be there as a researcher um, to sort of observe and talk to people about the events of the chapter assembly. Yeah, no, um, and, and, and yeah, and I imagine you must have had very interesting conversations and I, if, if you can share a little bit more about that or, or how were people, uh, for example, talking about the food as they were eating, um, or even tell us a little bit more about, about the food that you guys ate at the, at the dinner. Yes. Well, what was striking was as soon as we walked in, there, everyone had a menu at their place at the table. Um, and everyone, it was a very kind of informal and friendly atmosphere that you would just go and sit down at a table with people that you maybe didn't know. I went to a table where one of my former students from the University of Gastronomic Sciences was sitting. So she was very welcoming. And then, of course, I met all the other people at the table. And we, as I said, we had this menu in front of us, which described, I think, were there five courses, I think? I should know that by heart. Um, and so before we even had the food and saw the food or tasted the food, we had its description. And it was very striking because the description on the menu that I reproduce in the article was extremely detailed, beautifully written, very poetic language, very... Uh, sensorily rich language. 
so that before we even had the food, we were already imagining it on the basis of this menu. Mm -hmm. And the what what was sort of fortuitous was the fact that I happened to take pictures of each course of the meal, <laughs> which is, you know, a lot of food scholars and a lot of foodies do that. But I might not have done it at that occasion, but <laughs> yeah. luckily I did. So I ended up having uh, pictures, photos documenting the content of each course, as well as that uh, verbal description in the menu. Um, do you want me to say more about some of the dishes or do you want to get to that later? Let's, let's take a break. Um, and when we come back, we'll go more into the dishes. And I will say that I'm very grateful that you did take those pictures and the pictures are available in the piece along with the menu. So people can get us a visual of that. Um, but we'll definitely then talk about the dishes when, when we come back. Okay. The future of farming in America is uncertain. Our farmers are aging and selling off their land. But the pandemic has revealed the importance of local farms as the national and international supply chain continues to be disrupted. I mean, it's not like most farmers have a company-sponsored retirement plan. I'm Hannah Forden, HRN's program manager, and I want to tell you about a new show. Hosted by John Piotti, the president and CEO of American Farmland Trust, and produced in collaboration with Heritage Radio Network, this is No Farms, No Future. There is a new generation of small farmers. We're here to tell their stories, share knowledge, and dig deep into the future of American farming. From land stewardship, we are losing 2,000 acres of farmland a day. The price of land is often so high that it's really hard to get started. To cracks in the supply chain. By the time I go shopping every single day, there's no meat left to feed my family. The future of farms is the future of food. Subscribe to No Farms, No Future, a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Find us wherever you like to listen. And we are back. This is Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Melissa Fuster talking with Carol Cunningham about her article, Food Activism and Language in a Slow Food Italy Restaurant Menu, available in issue 21.4 of Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. So before the break, uh, we were just starting to get, uh, to get to know more about the food and the menu served at, at this dinner. Um, so Carol, yes, I want you to tell us more about the, the menu. And um, as you do, I think um, one of the important aspects of, of your paper that, that makes it interesting is that you approach the, the menu as a study of, of food through as language. So I think if you can share uh, a little bit more about that approach, and um, maybe even a, one of your favorite examples from, from the menu that, that exemplifies this, this approach. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, the, the, 
The menu itself was, as I said, extremely richly described. And what I was curious about, given the relationship between language and culture, as well as between language and thought, was how perhaps the slow food organizers in conjunction with this restaurant were either sort of consciously or unconsciously working to shape how people think about food by providing a language in, in which and through which to think about that food. Um, and we have some wonderful work on food and language by Jillian Cavanaugh and Kate Riley and Martha Karabek and, and their associates thinking about how food is both language and language can be food and how the ways that we can frame food through language can help us think about it in perhaps new ways that we didn't really think about before. And so what I noticed um, when I started to look at this menu uh, is all of the references to, for example, locality. Um, locality, not just in terms of Italian food and foods from Italy, but more importantly, foods from the particular region of Italy where the conference was taking place which happened to be the region of Lazio, which uh, the capital of which is Rome, of course, which is the capital of Italy. And the, the, the whole event was taking place in the town of Fiumicino, which is the port of Rome, essentially. Um, and it's also where Rome's major airport is located. And so this is a coastal region in central Italy, so there was, for example, in the very first course, uh, a carpaccio di sugarello, uh, thinly sliced cured Italian mackerel. Uh, that's a carpaccio mm -hmm. of sugarello. And then they go on to say it's from our coast with a marinade of IGP or PGI artichokes from La Dispoli. Um, so you have just in the fir very first course, you have an evocation of local food, regional food, um, particular specialties of the area. So mackerel is, of course, a fish. Um, the artichokes were uh, protected geographical indication artichokes. And La Dispoli is an ancient Etruscan site that is, was the site of a major port during Etruscan times, which is essentially pre-Roman or Bronze Age times in this part of Italy. So you're getting in just this very first course, not only a dish that has meaning and history locally, but that evokes traditions, a glorious past of the Etruscans, and a claiming um, of place, our coast. So all that kind of rolled into just the first course. Um, and it happened, of course, also to be delicious. 
Um, there's also in the menu, not just an evocation of locality in words like, you know, our shores, the te territorio or territory, but there's also a, an evocation of hunger. And that shows up in the second course, which is the cuisine of hunger, la cucina de la fame. And it goes on um, to say, and I forgot to mention this earlier, that, that each course had both a sort of descriptive heading and then a description of the actual dish. <clears throat> so the second course is cuisine of hunger, return of the repressed. Um, and what I interpreted that to be about was the fact that once hunger was really um, ubiquitous in Italy, um, most of the population were poor peasants. They didn't have enough to eat for most of Italian history. And so hunger and hunger foods were basically a part of the food culture. However, in the late um, 1960s, the Italian so-called economic miracle started and people had a ever higher standard of living and so forgot about this cuisine of hunger. So I think when the little heading says cuisine of hunger, return of the repressed, it's like we are reminding you that hunger was once dominant and that there were all these foods to satisfy hunger. Um, and we have repressed those memories, but now we're going to remind you of them. And the dish that went with that um, sort of heading was the so-called burnt grain pasta. In this case, it was a so-called guitar pasta, which is like spaghetti except square in cross-section instead of round. And it was burnt grain pasta mm -hmm. with shellfish. Um, the burnt grain pasta, grano arso, was supposedly um, the, the grains that were left behind in the fields after the threshing machines went through, and the heat of the threshing machines mm -hmm. would scorch the grains left behind. And then gleaners would go in for free and glean the leftover grains after the harvesting machines had been through. So that grain or wheat wasn't um, like regular wheat. It had been already slightly burnt or toasted and it was cheap. It was free. Um, and they made a dish with shellfish because of course in the old days, shellfish were anyone's to have for the gathering because they were very common and they were free. Now today, of course, shellfish is much mm -hmm. more expensive. So yes. it's a reminder of how culture has changed um, and how fundamental aspects of traditional foods have evolved and are still to be remembered. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and, and it's true when, when you read the, the piece and you see the, the description and they are very in-depth and, and just what you just said about the contextualizing these dishes in the in the long history of, of Italy and, and the region, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I wanted to ask you about something that, that you mentioned in, in the piece and going back at, as to how these dishes are are traditional and, and set in place based on 
on a very long history of, of Italy. But you you mentioned also the the things that are were not present in the menu, and particularly um, ethnic foods and immigrant foods that you know Italy has changed a lot, right? Since these dishes were first um, eaten in the in the country and the region, um, and now I'm sure that there you, you see, like we see globally, uh, people moving and and making their mark in the lo- in the local food waste and food systems. Um, can you tell me more about this? And and it is a, it is sort of in the end of, of the piece, but I wanted I wanted to see if you can expand more on this omission and, and your realization of this as you look through the menu. Yeah, the the menu kind of purposely focuses on foods indigenous to the Mediterranean region. Um, so, for example, even the vegetables that are mentioned, uh, artichokes, broccoli, um, fennel, they are all indigenous to the Mediterranean. And there's no mention of, of those foods from the Colombian exchange, like tomatoes, beans, potatoes, mm-hmm. that, are, that are very much part of Italian food today um, that are considered part of Italian cuisine. But as you mentioned, there's also no uh, more modern introduced foods, which are nonetheless increasingly prevalent in Italy, for example, through kebab shops, through Indian Mm -hmm. restaurants, through Mexican restaurants. Um, And I think it's a it's a tension and a conundrum for slow food to think about how to be open to diverse peoples and diverse foods while at the same time supporting local food and local traditions. And I think there's a very serious tension because as there are increasing numbers of immigrants in Italy, Um, and people of non-Italian backgrounds, they want to eat their foods, and yet there doesn't seem to be a place for those foods within Slow Foods' particular type of food activism. Um, And many people have commented on sort of Italian culinary chauvinism, uh, which you know, kind of goes beyond Italian food being the best versus the rest, but it but it gets in very regionalized and localized. So Tuscan food is better than Lazio food or Florentine beans are better than Scandici beans or whatever. Um, so I think, I think it's something that's probably not resolved and may take a while to resolve um, what's the place of these foreign cuisines in Italy today and does is there is there a place for them and does that fact address whether there's a place for immigrant peoples which at this point in time mm-hmm. is not it's not clear um, whether Italy has room for immigrants was is welcoming them. Uh, there's a lot of tensions there. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, 
And and I was wondering too when when you were looking at the menu and had this realization, did this come at the dinner as you were looking at the menu or after after you you went deep into the analysis? Or I mean, I'm asking to see if this is something, for example, that that you commented with your fellow uh, diners uh, about these submissions. No, this realization came much later as I thought about this um, dinner and as I thought about the paper and it was, I did the research in 2009 and then it was in 2012 that I was invited to a conference at Cornell on the language of food that was organized among by, among others, Diana Garvin, who was a grad student at the time. And so it was only in 2012 that I really even started to look at the materials that I had about this dinner and started thinking about the language of the menu and then started noticing how incredibly grounded in the local foods of the Lazio region it was and how there was almost nothing that wasn't from that region except the the black pepper from Honduras in the dessert. So it was later, and I think this is so much the case of anthropology that, you know, it's it's inherently incomplete. You don't realize the significance of things until years later when it's too late to go back and sort of pursue mm-hmm. them further. Um, but yeah, when we were at the dinner, we were probably focusing on how delicious the, the courses were and how varied and what the tastes were and not really thinking about the whole historical and traditional <laughs> aspects of it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I imagine that that was that was the case. And no, thank you for for sharing that because it is the case that, you know, the, these these uh, analytic exercises they they take time um, to to do. And definitely, so thank you for sharing that. Um, and actually, some of the things that that you mentioned now about this tension between immigrant foodways and and the importance of local food in the in the slow food movement i wanted to ask you more about that and and also see if we can bring into conversation other pieces of your work like for example um, even though we have focused a lot here on your extensive work in italy you have also engaged other geographies and communities and particularly i wanted to ask you about your work in with the Mexican community in Colorado uh, published in A Tortilla is Like Life. And I ask about this because I think, I, I wonder, for example, how these bodies of, of scholarship are in conversation as you're taking a critical analysis of, of menus like this, seeing the exclusion of immigrant foodways while having a research uh, immigrant foodways in in the United States. Do do they speak to each other a little bit in in your work? Yes. Um, What's interesting is that my book, A Tortilla is Like Life, isn't really about immigrant foodways because it's looking at a longstanding Hispanic, Hispano, Mexicano, however you want to determine it, community here in Southern Colorado. And so they take 
uh, enormous care to point out they are not immigrants, but rather have been in this part of the world at least since 1850 um, and much longer mm -hmm. if you consider their roots in northern New Mexico. What I think really struck me about the, the comparison with my work in Italy is the elaborate concern with food in Italy, the incredible diversity of foods, even for, for poor people, even for the peasants, because of, in, at least in part, the climatic and geographical and, and territorial differences. Here in, I, I happen to be in Colorado right now as we're talking, here, you know, the very short growing season of, of two months a year, possibly maybe three months a year now that, that global warming is happening. But the rest of the year, it's cold, it's dry, you can't grow a lot of stuff. And so the diet tended to be much more uh, streamlined uh, and potentially even monotonous. Whereas in Italy, that mm -hmm. diversity of the continent itself, uh, of, you know, from southernmost Italy to the Alps, from the sea to the mountains, has kind of, I think, stimulated a, a, a rich and diverse food culture and a fascination with foods and tastes in a way that the more limited growing ability here uh, didn't permit. And so food is just as important to the culture here, but it's, it's different. It's, it's not so embellished and elaborated. Um, and I think that has to do with, with climate as well as other things. So it's not really an immigrant, non-immigrant question, but really more of a what's mm -hmm. the basis of the food system kind of question. Yeah, no, no, definitely. And and I think I also want to just think thinking beyond uh, that specific community, it's just this tension. Um, for example, I am I am I am a Puerto Rican living in the United States. So a lot of the foods, it if you want to follow like that local diet, that means I don't get to eat plantains or or other right. things that are not grown where where I live. Right. So it's this this tension that I think it's it's there as as food systems become more globalized and people move across borders. Yes, and it's it's attention for food activism because we we live in an economy in a global food system that's so interconnected, and you can't strip it all away and go back to the 18th century or the 17th or the 16th. Um, and yet there are some real, yeah. real important concerns about interrogating that globalization of food. And it, it is a tension. And I think it's one that's, that's sort of an ongoing concern in the food studies literature of, you know, there, there's a movement in Italy for zero kilometer food. And I just had a, somebody um, share mm -hmm. with me a call for papers interrogating the whole concept of zero kilometers just because it's it's both 
has a, an ecological sense as well as a cultural sense, but it's also very limiting and goes counter to so many economic trends of today, as well as personal trends, as you mentioned. You want to be able to eat your cultural foods. They're important. They're meaningful. Uh, but if they don't grow in the area you live in, how do you get them? And what does that bring about for the economy and your own personal you know, culinary culture, diet, and pocketbook. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> that's, that's giving us work to do, definitely. Um, and yeah, and that's actually something I wanted to, to ask you to, to wrap up this very interesting conversation to see what are you working on now? Um, what is the next step? Uh, I'm even curious to see if you're tackling a little bit of this debate that about local foods and immigrant food waste or, or global global food waste? Yeah, so um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do next in terms of my own field work. I don't know if I'm going to start on a new field work project or sort of build on, on some data I already have. But I am working with my colleague, Susanna Hoyland, who was my co-editor of the book, Making Taste Public, that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. Mm -hmm. And she and I are co-editing a book called um, Chefs, Restaurants, and Sustainability, which has a number of articles from scholars from all over the world, looking at ways that chefs and restaurants are trying to bring about sustainability, both social sustainability, economic sustainability, and of course, environmental sustainability. And I think it's going to very much tie in with this question that you uh, just raised about, you know, local food, imported food, zero kilometers, um, because Obviously, the further away the food comes, the less sustainable it is because it's got to be transported mm -hmm. and that consumes resources. So what are the ways that, that chefs, for example, in El Paso, Texas, or in Colombia, Bogota, Colombia, uh, or in Africa are trying to really bring about a sustainable food economy by making their restaurants an agent of survival and endurance. And is it through, you know, cultivating local foods more intensely, gathering foods, coming up with new recipes to use mm. foods that have disappeared, uh, eliminating waste and upcycling, there are all kinds of really fascinating ideas that our contributors are starting to come up with that I think will have a lot to a lot of light to cast on this debate about local food and sustainability and globalization. Wow, I sounds amazing. When when can we when can we read it? When 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 do you expect this to be out? Uh, I would say probably give us two years. Um, we're expecting the first drafts on May 1st, and you know how that goes. 
and then we'll do second drafts, uh -huh. <laughs> and then we'll submit to the press, and then they'll give us feedback. So I would say it'll probably take a year and a half or two years, but I hope it'll be worth the wait. No, definitely. Um, and thank you for, for sharing this. I'm very excited for, for this next piece of, of work from you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, and thank you so much for joining us in general. Um, it's been a pleasure to, to speak with you and learn more about this, this work. And listeners can read food activism and language in a slow food Italy restaurant menu in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, volume 21.4. For more details and further reading, visit gastronomica.org and join Gastronomica next week as we talk to Tulasi Sunivas about food delivery apps, technology, and the changing meaning of the local uh, pandemic in India. So thank you so much. <laughs>